You ever had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons come to the door of your home wanting to share with you their faith and some religious literature? You ever had that happen? Come on, come on raise your hand. I, I just want to see. Yeah, most of us, most of us had that kind of experience. <clears throat> a cartoon I saw this past week uh, from the San Francisco Chronicle was clearly created with one of those experiences in mind. Look at this cartoon, and you know the pamphlet's blank, and that's because we're atheists. Um, made me smile when I first saw it, because if you're a real atheist, it has impact on what you do, right? If you're a real atheist, you're not going to waste your time, not going to waste your money going door to door, right? Not going to print any pamphlets. There's nothing to tell about. No, no reason to write a pamphlet, no reason to spend the money to print all that stuff. Why bother? You go your way, do something else with your life and your time, right? Well, that's sort of the scene in a passage of Scripture that I want to draw your attention to this morning. If you have your Bible, open it up to Luke 24. Uh, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture today. If you don't have the, the shelf in front of you, if uh, you're not familiar with uh, where Luke 24 is, uh, just find it on page 635. Uh, we're not going to read it yet, but just find it. I want you to find it. And uh, the text, the context here is that there are two of Jesus' disciples they're uh, spiritually disillusioned. They're on their way out of Jerusalem. Three days earlier, they'd personally witnessed Jesus being crucified. And now, they'd just heard a couple of the women from their group excitedly tell them, Guys, guys, Jesus' tomb is empty and we saw angels. Look here, not at the passage, okay? Are you looking at me? Come on, with me. Ignore this. Thank you for taking off the screen. Look at me. Look at me. Guys is what they're hearing. They're, they're, this is what they, the, the excited women saying to them. And remember, this is a chauvinistic culture, okay? Excited women saying to them, guys, guys, we went to the tomb this morning. He's not there. He's been resurrected. We saw angels tell us that he was alive. This is what they heard. And they believed it so much, the two disciples, that what they do, left. They left town. They wanted to believe them. But see, they had this problem. They, they, they probably had read the article in the Jerusalem Post that was something like the one I drew your attention to last week. Headline. You know, that just the whole deal of how uh, the world's death rate has been holding steady at 100%. They were familiar with this. No angels had solved that, and so they headed on their way out of Jerusalem to go do something else with their time, with their life. They weren't at that moment printing brochures going door-to-door anywhere. Let me just say this to, uh, to all of us. Many in our world have done the exact same thing. It's not that we disbelieve entirely necessarily. It's just that we don't know what to do with whatever measure of doubt and unbelief has crept into our lives. We just don't know what to do with it. And so in our disillusionment, we go our way. Often we do nothing. Often we say nothing. We just kind of live our life, do our own thing, and uh, hope for the best spiritually. I believe today God wants to help us take some steps toward overcoming our unbelief, whatever measure of it is that we happen to have. 
my hope is that every one of us will take a step or two toward belief, toward faith, toward God, who cares for us and you more than you probably give him credit for. You have your Bible there. Just now let's look at it. Okay, Luke 24. Now we'll get to it. Okay, just open it up there. Start at verse 13. This is the, this is the scene. That same day, two of Jesus' disciples, followers, were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God, think of this verse, but God kept them from recognizing him. If it's your Bible, underline that verse. Okay? But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. Note to self, sometimes God's capable of playing dumb. Okay? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. And notice what they said here, verse 21. This was the root of their dilemma. We had hoped he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing. They had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see. Sure enough, his body was gone. Notice they didn't say he's alive. What did they say? His body was gone, just as the women had said. Jesus said to them, you foolish people. Now, let me just say this. We've, pause. This is, my, this is my makeup for the gender comment thing earlier here. The, the original language doesn't say people. He's saying, you foolish men. Okay? So, gals, you can love that. You foolish men. This is, you're just quoting scripture. Is all you're doing. You, but but, but he, says, he says to them, you foolish men, you foolish people. You find it so hard. I'll get back to my point. I'm sorry. Uh, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard that? By this time, they were nearing Emmaus in the end of the journey, and Jesus acted as if he were going on. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. And so he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. And he broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? It's a rich passage of scripture. There's so much more 
right here for you and me than we have time to focus on this morning. But we're going to focus on this. We're going to focus our thoughts on three keys to overcoming spiritual doubt and unbelief that are either stated or in one instance inferred in these verses. Three keys to overcoming spiritual doubt and unbelief that we all need to uh, listen carefully to because they apply to us. Hope you'll take a few notes as we go. Maybe it'll help you remember some of what these verses say. First key to overcoming spiritual doubt and unbelief is highlighted really clearly and directly, I might add, by Jesus in this passage. He just looks at him and he says, you know, his point is really that each of us needs to search Scripture more carefully. We need to search it more carefully. Look at verses 25 to 27 again. Jesus said to them, you foolish people. Foolish men, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then Jesus walked him, took him through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the, the things concerning himself. Now, there are many things that I could highlight in just these three verses. But I want you to understand something. I want you to notice that word foolish. See that word there in the text? What do you understand? Jesus is not trying to be mean and insulting to his disciples in this event, in this moment when he calls them foolish. I want you to think about it with me. This is more of like a, a diagnostic, clinical use of the word foolish. What do I mean? Is your doctor trying to be mean and insulting to you if he points out that you've gained another 10 pounds since he last saw you? Is that what he's doing? Really? No, he's not trying to insult you. He's trying to make an observation. It's a factual assessment that left ignored has consequences, right? Well, you could say Dr. Jesus here has got a little spiritual health assessment going on for his disciples. And he's pointing out to them that well-intentioned though they may be, they're being foolish. Now, let me just help you move beyond the hang-up we have with the word in our language. The actual Greek word that he used is not only translated foolish, it's also translated unthinking. Unthinking. It could be uh, like he's saying to them, uh, guys, your unbelief is rooted in careless, sloppy, shallow thinking. You just, you know, if he wanted to insult them, he would have used, to use the same phrase, he would have called them airheads. That's what he had done. Dingbat. I mean, it's just like people who are not thinking is what he was going for here, just regarding the Scripture. According to the text, Jesus went on from that moment to highlight the many prophecies found in the Old Testament that foretold in clear terms at this point his sufferings, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It was all confusing before this moment, but at this moment he was now resurrected, and all that he had suffered they had seen. They had watched him die... They had watched him be buried, and now they were about to discover they were witness to his resurrection. Undoubtedly, Jesus walked him through passages like Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Deuteronomy 18, a long list of others that we could list. I would love to have heard what Jesus specifically said regarding himself. But his message was clearly, guys, search Scripture more carefully your unbelief is rooted in shallow, sloppy thinking. 
Aren't you thankful that our generation doesn't have any problems like that? I was thinking about that. We're the generation of the six-second soundbite. Right? If it can't be said in a soundbite, you know, nobody's, nobody's listening. You suppose that in any way affects our ability to think deeply about God, Scripture, truth, the reality of the world in which we live? Does it affect our, our ability to pursue virtuous lives, to become authentically good? Sometimes I think it's so easy for us to settle for the appearance of good because we can take care of that in six seconds. You just can't become authentically godly in six seconds. Last week I used an article from the original fake news source, theonion.com. I, I, you know, I, I like The Onion. I, my name is Greg Montague. I like The Onion. Uh, it's my own little confession. I, I don't watch, read it all the time, but I, but I do look at it fairly often. Uh, it's sort of like the uh, uh, despair.com site, which is sort of a dark. I, the, the satire, the sarcasm, when it comes to our culture, I kind of enjoy. And uh, that's my own brokenness. So thank you for forgiving me and praying for me. But when I was searching for the one that I used last week in the message, okay, when I was looking for that one, uh, I ran across another one that I think humorously captures the depth of thought that many people in our day give to a lot of very complex issues. Uh, just Here it is, and remember, it's satire, okay? It pokes fun at the times we live in. Guys sitting in front of his there are no good options in Syria, sized man who has devoted 12 minutes of research to the topic. Okay, 12 minutes of research. He's trying to untangle all of the issues in Syria. Let me, because you can't read really that, let me just kind of read a couple of lines here from the article. Uh, shaking his head at the tragic futility of it all, local man Daniel Roth sighed, There are no good options in Syria. Thursday, after devoting 12 minutes of casual research to the topic, quote, it's just so heartbreaking, but what's worse is that there doesn't seem to be any real solution, said Roth, who skimmed seven paragraphs of a Washington Post editorial on the subject and watched a short Vox explainer video on the various participants in the conflict before clicking over to the teaser trailer for Thor Ragnarok. (laughs) I could read on, but you get the gist. I mean, this is, is this not who we are as a people anymore. We devote 12 minutes of distracted, casual attention to something and expect that we know what's going to work or not work in Syria, right? Same thing happens when it comes to spiritual things. The same, the same ailment that that's representative of affects all of our spiritual lives you know, just as, just as a, a, a quick 12-minute review of a complex event in Syria is not going to equip somebody to be a meaning, draw meaningful conclusions about what's going on there or ought to happen there, a random, casual 12-minute read of the Bible is probably not going to resolve all of your doubts, probably not going to resolve all of your unbelief, clarify all of your questions, your problems. It takes, it takes more time, and, and I might add this, more humility of spirit, more of a willingness to learn. Fundamentally, as a culture, you know, we, we think we can get it in 12 minutes because we are, convinced, we are so impressed with ourselves. 
how educated, how smart, how intelligent I am, that I know what thousands and thousands of millions of other people don't know. On some level, Jesus' assessment of our foolishness is more precise than we give him credit for. If we don't understand that he's not just saying that we're just like stupid, the other thing, he's just, if we don't understand that he's saying we're unthinking about it, we're shallow, we're, you know, it's kind of like we don't want to hear what he says. We want to deal with our unbelief. We want to move past unbelief somehow or another. We want clarity of mind about what's going on in our world. We've got to search the scriptures a little more carefully. We don't need more books that have been printed and written by me or anybody else. We need more scripture. That's what we need. It's the first key to overcoming spiritual doubt and unbelief is to go to the source of clarity. The events of Luke 24 also illustrate a second key to overcoming spiritual doubt and unbelief. And it's a key that often we don't think about. As we, as we live our lives, the second key is this. We all need to remember the biblical view of life. Some of you are thinking, okay, well, what, do you, what do you mean by that? You remember the biblical view of life. Here's the biblical view. There's more to life than what we physically see. This isn't all there is, friends. And this isn't all there is. And this, flesh and blood, is not all there is. There's a whole lot more to life than what you and I see with our eyes and experience, experience with our senses of just seeing, hearing, touching, feeling, tasting. The material realm is real, yes, but there's more that's going on around us constantly. And sometimes, because that creeps us out a little bit, it makes us feel stupid and small. And we don't like to feel stupid and small, so we don't want to think about that. But here's the reality. If you want to understand life, You've got to recognize the biblical view of life. There's more going on than what meets the eye. According to the biblical view of life, you, every one of us in this room, you are first and foremost a spiritual being, hear me, just as God is spirit. You are not a body with a soul. According to Scripture, you are a soul who, guess what? God gave a body to you. Are you tracking with me? Think about this. Without legs, are you still fully human? Answer me. Of course you are. Without an arm, are you still fully human? Yes. Yes. Because you are a soul who happens to have a body. On some level, we understand this. We just choose to never think about it until something happens that I lose a leg or I lose an arm or something goes wrong with my body. Your body is a glorified machine temporarily given to you as a gift from God. It's not yours. It's a gift. Guess what? One of these days, every one of us has to give it back. Every one of us. No exceptions. Have I mentioned lately that the death rate's been holding steady at 100%? Everybody has to give it back. 
your spirit, your soul, the real you was created to live in perfect communion with the living God who is spirit and truth. And God gave you a body, not so you could relate to him, so you could relate to me and with each other. we had time, we could talk about how this body protects us to some degree from the spiritual realm, which is a much more dangerous environment than we give it credit for, according to Scripture. All of this shows up in Luke 24 when Jesus disappears. That got his disciples' attention. He disappears. And his two disciples say to each other in Luke 24, verse 32... Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Didn't they burn within us? Here's what was going on. Their souls knew what their eyes did not. Their souls were aware of what their eyes could not see. They were in the presence of greatness. They were in the presence of a brilliance and a... And a goodness that their spirit was feeding off of, but their eyes were not witness to. One of the keys to overcoming spiritual doubt and unbelief is is when you and I stop just thinking in terms of material stuff. Start living according to a biblical view of life that there's more going on than what meets the the eye. Having said that, there's a third key to overcoming spiritual doubt and unbelief in this passage. And that's this. As we live our lives, we all need to keep our eyes open. What I mean by that, in Luke 24, Jesus' presence was veiled. It was hidden. He was disguised from his disciples for most of their time together in this particular instance. You suppose that ever happens in our time? Before you answer too quickly, I could take you to several passages that indicate it could happen. We could talk about people who are entertaining angels unaware. We could talk about people who give cups of cold water to the poor and so forth. And Jesus says, you're doing it to me. We could talk about a lot of different passages. I'd rather tell you a story, though. 2010, my first experience going to Israel several years ago, my friends, Brent and Scott. Maybe you know Brent, because Brent's been here and taught He's... uh, Talked us, walked us through the book of Revelation and so forth uh, several years ago, but maybe I haven't come back one of these days because he understands it better than me. But anyway, <clears throat> Brent and Scott are both pastor friends. We went to college together. In 2010, uh, Brent, who owns a travel agency, takes groups of people to Israel. Could not believe that my friend Scott and I had been in ministry for 25 years at that point. We'd never been to Israel. He just was beside himself. And if you know Brent... When he's beside himself, you're in trouble because he's just, he's relentless. He just talks, 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 and twists. With, you know. so, uh, so our wives said, why don't you guys, one of the three, because we were such good friends, we traveled, did a lot of things, and one of the three of you just go to Israel together. 
and it was a brilliant idea. It was a wonderful experience. So we, we bought our plane tickets. We go to Israel back in February of 2010. I'll never forget the experience. It was, it was one of the richest spiritual uh, growth experiences of my life. Uh, we're over there, uh, rent a car. Uh, I'm sad to say Brent was driving, but anyway. Uh, that, that was We needed more prayer than we received as it was happening. But anyway, he's driving. We're seeing just sight after sight. It's amazing things. You know, it's just like Scripture coming to life as you go and visit places because there's so much there that you can see that it's just like it was then. Uh, so a lot of things have changed, of course, but some of it, you know, you don't know exactly, you know, where certain things happen, but you are, you know, like, you're within this much space, of where it really took place, a lot of these events. And so it's, it's truly a remarkable experience. But as we were traveling and seeing things, we kept running into an Orthodox Hasidic Jewish man who every time we saw him, he was passionately praying. And, and I can't fully and accurately describe him other than to say he had on the black suit. You, you've seen Orthodox Hasidic Jewish man, black suit, white, uh, white uh, pressed shirt, uh, the black hat, uh, the locks, the long uh, twirling locks, the prayer book. And every time we saw him, we saw him multiple places all over the country, um, we, we, we would see him and he would be reading this book and, he, and I wish I could do this. It's like I can see it in my mind. I wish I could transfer. He had this ability to spin as he's praying. You've maybe seen some do this before, but he's spinning as he's praying and kind of like bobbing and spinning as he's doing this, okay? Only fast. I, I, you don't want me to do it fast. You just don't want me to. And so he's praying like this, and every time he would spin around, it's like, it's like he would do this, and he could, his neck went further than mine. And, I mean, it was just like he would lock. It's, it kind of creeped us out a little bit, to be honest, as we're seeing this, because, because every time we saw him, he locked eyes with me. And if you talk to Scott, Scott thought he locked eyes with him. If you talk to Brent, Brent thought he locked eyes with him. Of course, we were close together, but he was locking eyes with us and, and spinning and praying, and we just kept seeing him all over the country. He had a thin face. Um, every time I saw him, I could feel something inside. It's like I, I felt the urgency of his prayers. Every time I saw him, it's like... Uh, biblically prophetic things that are yet to come would flood my mind as I looked at the urgency, the tears with which he prayed as he would spin and lock eyes with us. And he would just spin and pray and lock eyes. Never said a word, but we all had thoughts flood our minds as he did this third time we saw him, we were at the, the t- right near the temple uh, mount. Um, he was kind of in this corner, and we saw him. And later that afternoon, we went back to our hotel that day. That was the day we were getting ready to leave, and so we were trying to stay up. You know, we'd been trying to stay. You'd manage your t- sleep times, and so we get back to the hotel uh, late in the afternoon, and right near the door, uh, for whatever reason, this time it hit us. There was a giant life-size statue right near the entrance to the Gilgal Hotel at the time. And, and since then, I've learned that this hotel, I mean, they've got all kinds of art that comes and goes and sculptings and statues and all this kind of stuff. It's, a, it's one of their things there. It's, it's pretty close to the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv. 
And uh, we walked up to the door, and we noticed this statue that was standing right near the entrance of the hotel that we'd walked past numerous times at this point already without uh, hardly noticing. And it's a statue of a shepherd, uh, a young, young man as a shepherd boy, you might say, but he's a man, he's a young man, with a sheep, a lamb, around his shoulders. He's holding the lamb on his shoulders, and uh, he's kind of standing in a, a strong position. And... Uh, it's called the Good Shepherd, is what it says at the bottom of the statue, and, and, and it's a picture of King David. But here's what caught our eye: we looked at the statue. Every detail of the statue was identical to the face, the features, the height, everything about the man that we kept seeing. Now you kind of go, that's, that's a little weird. What's significant about it, too, is, you know, one of the phrases that the scriptures use to describe the Messiah? He will be the son of David. That's what it's descriptive. And as we see the statue, it's just like, again, we have this, like, burning in our spirit that, that God was meeting us during this time. It was a veiled fashion, but he was... He was kind of welcoming us to his place, to his city. One of the great mysteries of life is that sometimes God does pull back the veil. Now, you could say, that doesn't prove that he's a Messiah. No, it doesn't. It doesn't prove that that was Jesus. It doesn't. You didn't have the burning in your spirit. That's just one of many stories I could tell you. I could tell you the story this morning of a, of a young man who, right here at Southwood several years ago, I'm not making this up, met Jesus Easter Sunday morning in the hallway, headed to the children's area. I like to think he came in here too, but we know he went to the children's area. And, and what am I saying? Literally, this individual walked up to him. Jesus walked up to him and said, Hi, and called him by name. And this individual said, Happy Easter, Jesus. Like, beside himself. And Jesus said, Happy Easter. Called him by name. And I can tell you, this individual was not of a mind to believe that that would have happened. And it was confirmed. And you know how? There were children nearby who said, at the preschool, you know how it's laid out there? They're standing at the little gate. The children look out and say, look, there's Jesus. And somebody who had no idea this was going on heard the children. And nobody else saw anything. The person to whom this happened walked in the auditorium, sat down, and pretty much spent the rest of the service trying to recover. Uh, It was pretty much what happened. What's my point is keep your eyes open. He's alive and well. And you may see him, you may not, but here's the point. It'll remind you of the biblical view of life. And it'll remind you that you need to search the word of God more thoroughly, more carefully than most of us do. 
and remind you of the most important, amazing thing to me about Luke 24. And it's this. Think about this. Did Jesus' disciples, did the two on the road to Emmaus, away from Jerusalem, did those two disciples go looking for Jesus in their spiritual discernment? Is that what they did? In a word, no. It ought to be comforting to you that Jesus came looking for them. In your moments of doubt and unbelief and disillusionment, keep your eyes open because even if you lack the faith to look for him, he's got more than enough compassion to come looking for you. After all, he is the good shepherd. If you've been struggling with some measure of disillusionment or unbelief, I just want to ask you, will you? We choose today to take a step or two toward belief, toward faith. A step away from unbelief and toward God. He'll meet you if you will. And he'll bless you if you will. Because he cares. Let's bow our heads and pray and we're going to be dismissed. I invite you to stand with me actually. Let's pray. bow our heads and then we'll be uh, dismissed. And if you need prayer for anything in your life, we'd be happy to, a number of us up here to pray for you. So, okay. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for every person here. Thank you for them. But together, we want to thank you for your heart toward us. And if you'd go looking for these two who heard that you'd resurrected but had other things to do and weren't sure about it and headed to another place. You, uh, you had mercy. You reached out to them. You went after them. We thank you for that, and we thank you that you care enough about us to do the same. Thank you that you're alive. Thank you for what that represents, that death is not the end. You made us souls and spirits and in mercy have given us a body. The implication of that being that if this body breaks down and stops to operate, we'll be just fine. Because the day is coming. The promise is that you will give us a new body, new life, and the new one will be incorruptible, indestructible. It will be like yours. Thank you for that. Father, forgive us for the times when we look at Scripture rather casually as though a 12-minute read, a distracted read of your word is, it somehow explains everything, or other times we just look at it and go, I, I don't get it, so we go on. Forgive us. Would you help us to think like you think, to live like you live, that we might, might become more like you are. And now, fathers, we leave this place. Would you be with us? Help us to keep our eyes open. Lord, I'm just going to ask that you would confirm your presence to each of us this week. Ask that you'd show up some of our lives. You'd surprise us. Not because you have to, but because you care and because you're good. Now go with us, Father. May we think on these things 
and may we live according to them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Bless you all.